God is sovereign over his creation, over man, over salvation, and, and it is God's will to save people. Who he saves and when he saves them and how he saves them is up to him. Our part in this salvation is to take the message to them, to do it willingly, to do it joyfully, obediently, and say, Lord, thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that you have put me into your service. Thank you that you've counted me worthy to bring this message. And Lord, you do your work in their lives. I will go because you say go. And I will trust in you that you will do the very best thing with the message that's proclaimed. Uh, because we are in our, our special day today, our fifth Sunday, we're not going to be in the book of Luke. Uh, I actually have just today in the pulpit, and then I go back to our rotation next week and go to uh, Sunday school and continue First Peter. And so for two reasons, I have uh, decided not to preach from Luke this morning. Uh, one is um, because it's my last Sunday here in the pulpit. Uh, the second one is that uh, we recently went to SeaWorld, and I was inspired to teach through this book uh, as we went there. And so, um, children, I, I want to see if you know your sea creatures. Adults, you can feel free to answer as well. But uh, see, these are some of the creatures that we saw about a week and a half ago. Anyone know what animal this is? Moray eel, right? Green moray. Okay, I saw Hannah's hand back there, but uh, you knew what it was, didn't you? She did. Uh, how about this one? Anyone know what that is? It's a what? Okay, stingray. Manta rays look a little bit different. It is a stingray. It's a bat ray. There's a lot of different rays. Very cool. They have a touch pool over there where you can feed them squid and you can touch them, but uh, bat rays, I think, are very cool. You touch their skin, they feel kind of rubbery and real soft. Uh, interesting. Uh, how about these cute little guys right there? All right, okay. Isaac? What's that? They sure do, but they're there in the ocean, not in rivers. Oh, go ahead, you said it. Otters, that's right. These are sea otters, California otters. Very fun creatures to watch. And their fur, I don't know, I think it's like a million uh, hairs per square inch. Just amazing uh, coverage there. That's why they can float. They're so buoyant. They don't get cold out there. Not the way we would. But uh, otters are always a favorite. How about this guy right here? Anyone know that? Let's see. Abby, do you know what it is? Uh, seal, kind of similar, but it's different. This guy has ears. Seals don't. Sea lion, that's right. It's a sea lion, okay? How about here, these guys? Anyone know them? Uh, let's see. Lydia. Dolphins, yeah. Bought on those dolphins. They have a really cool uh, dolphin show over there. It's crazy to see them when they're up on their tails and moving around and, and jumping out of the water and flipping and we just sit there and be like, wow, that's so cool. And look at, look at what God has made. Look at these amazing creatures. Uh, how about this one there? This has got to be like the star, you know, of SeaWorld, okay? Um, um, someone's hand is back there. I see Selena pointing to someone. You want to just shout that out? Oh, she changed her mind. Okay. Uh, let's see. Isaac. Yeah, orca, that's an orca or a killer whale. And so by showing you that, especially with this last photo, anyone have an idea of where we are this morning? Not in the book of Luke, but Jonah, that's right. One of our older children picked up on those, 
on those uh, clues there. And uh, we are in Jonah this morning. Now, of course, if you know about orcas, killer whales, they're more uh, closely related to dolphins than whales, but we often look at them and say that they are whales. And uh, it's possible that Jonah wasn't even swallowed by a whale, but uh, the Bible talks about a fish, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, yes, we are looking at the book of Jonah this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at a survey of Jonah, an overview. So we're not going to dissect every verse of every chapter. In fact, in the book of Jonah, uh, there are only 48 verses in the entire book, four chapters, 48 verses. And uh, this is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. Uh, I really enjoy this, not so much because of the story of this man being swallowed up by this massive fish, which really does intrigue me. I'd like to see that happen one day. And, of course, to see the man be rescued safely. But um, the, the, the reminders throughout Jonah in, in these four chapters that God is sovereign that God has control over everything, and not just that, but that God is a compassionate God. In fact, the the, the title of this sermon comes from the very last verse. Take a look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 11, and the first few words of that verse, uh, that that is the title of what we are looking at this morning, and that is, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? And so as God asked this question of Jonah in the very last verse of this book, this is something I want us to think about as we begin from chapter 1 and go through chapters 2, 3, and 4, to remember that it is God's prerogative to have compassion, to save, to, to, to bring that gospel message, to bring the message of salvation and forgiveness to people. It is not our job, it is not our responsibility to determine who is worthy of being saved. And as we look at Jonah this morning, we're going to see this contrast of wills. God's will in contrast to Jonah's will. And as we look at that, I I hope that we understand this morning that uh, God's will is always right. It is always correct. It is always righteous. It is the best decision, the best plan that could possibly be made. Sometimes our wills are in line with God's will. Sometimes they are not. And oftentimes, we willingly rebel against God's will, as we will see this morning with Jonah. Well, as I mentioned, Jonah has four chapters. There's 48 verses. Uh, Jonah's name means dove. He is uh, identified as a son of uh, Amittai. He is a prophet to Israel during a very, very wicked time. Uh, Israel has a string of wicked kings, and the people are involved in idol worship. Uh, And so the the whole atmosphere of Israel, we can see that kind of on display through Jonah's attitude. Uh, They are not serving God as they should. They they have been uh, willing to serve other gods, and that goes from the top down. And, And you know that when the country's leaders are corrupt, that often trickles down to the rest of the nation. And that's what we see with Israel. The corruption has trickled down even to one of God's prophets. Now, this takes place about 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, somewhere between uh, 793 and 758 B.C., and so quite some time before Jesus would come to earth uh, and be born to Mary and Joseph. And again, during this time, it was very, very wicked. But God commissions Jonah. He commissions Jonah to take a very important message to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is also 
in a situation of spiritual darkness. Israel is, but so is Nineveh. And you would expect that coming from a pagan nation. Uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and uh, they have no love for God. They have no love for God's people, Israel. And so they worship many gods, and they practice many things that Israel is forbidden to practice. And so you would expect to see this paganism, this wickedness coming from a nation that has not been called to serve God. But here, God in his compassion, God's will is to save people from this Gentile, wicked nation. Gentile meaning they were not Jewish people. And so God chose Jonah to send them to, or send him to Nineveh to proclaim a message of salvation. And as we see here, Jonah doesn't like that. We'll find out uh, in chapter 1 very quickly that Jonah does not want to follow God's will, but he wants to follow his own. Uh, and so, uh, as he follows his own will, there's a reason in his mind why he doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. Uh, they were very cruel people. Uh, they were, we could say, anti-God, anti-Israel. Uh, anyone that they went to battle against, any captives that uh, they caught, uh, they would torture them brutally. Uh, they were known for being wicked, brutal people. And so you might think, well, Jonah was right for wanting to see them perish and not to be saved. Uh, you know, there are countries or, or individual groups like that throughout our world today where we look at them and say the brutality, the wickedness, you know, the terror that's involved with them, they deserve punishment. They deserve to be destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth. Um, but it's not always God's plan to do that. Uh, God often desires to save what we might say are even the most wicked people who walk the face of the earth. We might not like that idea, as Jonah did not like that idea, but um, God saves sinners. Now, when we look at the contrast today, uh, this is what we see. That as we look at this, this contrast or this conflict of wills, in Jonah, it is very clear that it is God's will to save sinners. He wants to save people outside of the nation of Israel. And so he sends Jonah on this mission of mercy. But Jonah's will is to serve himself. He knows what God's will is. He knows where God is sending him. He knows why God is sending him there. But Jonah simply does not want to comply. He doesn't want to do what God has told him to do. And so he chooses to serve himself. So as we come to each chapter, what we're going to do is I'm going to read each chapter, and then we'll go back and kind of break it down. Again, it's just an overview today. We're kind of doing a bird's eye view. So I encourage each one of you, go back and spend more time in Jonah. If you have children, spend time with your family and talk about these issues in Jonah, these great themes of God's mercy and his grace and his sovereignty, his holiness, his compassion, and talk about some of the negatives with Jonah's sinfulness his pride, his arrogance, his rebellion, uh, but also his repentance. And, and so as we look at this, very important lessons for us to learn today. And we'll begin as we look at Jonah chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, 
so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it uh, for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down, and was fallen sound asleep, or had fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. You know, as we come back to this message in Jonah, we understand here, first of all, that it was God's sovereign will that was revealed to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. God spoke to Jonah. Listen, from the, the creation of man, God has been speaking to his creation. Now, he has done that in different ways. You know, how he has done that and when he has done that and to whom, it differs throughout Scripture. Today, he speaks to us through his word. If you have a copy of the Bible, you have a copy of the word of God, you can look at this and have full assurance this is God's revelation to you. This is his message. This reveals his will. This is how he speaks to us today. Well, in Jonah's day, they would receive often direct revelation, whether that was through a dream or a vision or some audible voice. However God chose to reveal himself, he did that. And in this situation, God spoke to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And so as we look at this very important revelation, you would think that if God speaks to you, you would have enough sense to listen, to take those words to heart. But Jonah did not. The message was, arise, go to Nineveh. You need to get up. You need to go to this city. You know where it's at. You know who they are. Go to Nineveh and cry against it. Nineveh is a great city, but you need to go there and you need to call them out. You need to expose their sin. You need to give them the ultimatum. Let them know that if they don't change their ways, if they don't turn from their sin and turn to me, destruction is coming in 40 days. 
And so Jonah is given this mission of great urgency. You need to tell people that condemnation is coming, but you also need to tell them that I am gracious and I will save them, I will spare them. But they do that on my terms. It's my message, it's my method of salvation, it's my timing, you deliver the message, and whether or not they respond is between me and them. You don't have any authority to change their minds. You don't have that kind of power over the human mind. But you have been commissioned to deliver my message, Jonah. Go to these people. Go to these non-Jewish people. Go to your enemies and proclaim salvation from the Lord. You see, every time the gospel message is preached, it's an urgent message because it is focusing on the salvation of souls. It's not about political or social or economic reform. It's not about making your life more comfortable. It's not about being a better husband or wife or children. Those things can happen when we apply the word of God to our lives. But the message of the gospel is this. You have offended your creator. And your creator has determined that you stand guilty before him. You will be judged. You will be condemned. You will suffer unless... You believe in his word and accept his plan, his provision of salvation. The message was the same back then as it is the same today. And Jonah was to take that message to to go to the home turf of these Gentiles, not to preach safely from Israel, but to go into Nineveh and prophesy to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is an example of God's great mercy and his grace. To, to go to this massive city. Here's one artist's rendition of what Nineveh might have looked like. The largest city in its day. And, and according to some historians, the walls were almost eight miles long. They enveloped the inner city, and uh, the circumference was about 60 miles. And there's, they said that the population could have been somewhere between 600,000 people. That's a lot of people. I think the last time I checked, the city of Anaheim was somewhere between four and 500,000. Maybe it's been higher since then, but 600,000 people. That's a lot of people in this city, and that's a lot of territory to cover when you think about this area that has a circumference of 60 miles. Jonah is given this massive mission. You need to go to this huge city, this capital city, For us today, it would be like saying, you need to go to Washington, D.C., you need to go to New York, you need to go to San Francisco, you need to go to Los Angeles and proclaim judgment, but also proclaim compassion and salvation. I mean, what a daunting task. From a human perspective, we might look at that and say, well, no wonder Jonah didn't want to go. I mean, I don't know that any of us would say, hey, I want to be the the one voice of God that goes to this wicked city. Sure, I'll be the only prophet who's speaking God's word in New York or in Seattle or in L.A. or wherever it is. I mean, we might not step up to the task, but that's not for us to decide, really. If God calls and he sends us, we need to go. When God reveals his will, it is our responsibility as his people people to follow it. You know, Nineveh was guilty of crimes against humanity and crimes against God, crimes against God's people. And God said, your mission is twofold, Jonah. You go to Nineveh, you denounce the wickedness, but you also preach the gospel to Nineveh. Yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. That really gives us the the two main components of the gospel message here in God's words to Jonah. 
The, the first aspect of the gospel is this. It's the proclamation of man's sinfulness in the coming judgment. That's the first element of the gospel. You're a sinner. God is real. He has created you. You've rebelled. Judgment is coming. The second component of the gospel is the proclamation of God's gracious salvation. But God, this is what you've done. This is who you are. This is what's in store for you. But God has made provision for you to escape that. That's the gospel message. You remove one of those components, and it is no longer the gospel. And so God says their wickedness has come up against me. He was very aware of what was going on in Nineveh, not just in Israel, but throughout the world. Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. And he said, Nineveh's days are numbered. They are going to be punished. Listen, sin cannot be hidden from God. It doesn't matter what nation you're in. It doesn't matter you know, whether you're a, a man or a woman or you're young or old or, or whatever it is. You can't hide your actions from God. You can't hide your thoughts from God. God knew exactly what was happening in Israel. He knew exactly what was happening in Assyria. And he says, their wickedness has come up before me. I see it. I know their hearts. I know their desires. They are wicked. But Jonah, you need to go to them, and you need to give them this message. Turn to God or face destruction. Now, Nineveh was given 40 days. As we go on in this book, that's very gracious. I mean, how would you like to know the day of your death? If you knew exactly how many days you had, you would live your life differently. Nineveh had a 40-day notice. But not everyone is given that knowledge. I think it's safe to say none of us here know when the Lord's going to call us home, whether that's through natural causes or through you know, the failure of our bodies or an accident, whatever it is. We don't know what day we're going to be called home, when we're going to leave this world. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You have no idea how long you have here on the earth. That's why, in a sense, it's saying don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, when I get older or, you know, let me think about it more. Let me, let, let me uh, uh, you know, now's not a good time. Our family's going through this or I'm in the middle of a semester of college or there's a lot going on at work. I mean, so many excuses that people give as to why they just put salvation off, why they put the gospel message off. We don't have the luxury of knowing when our lives are going to end. But Nineveh was given that notice. Forty days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That was God's message to them through Jonah. Now we understand God is gracious. Here's a New Testament example, 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. All people who commit sin, God wants to see them saved. That means Jewish people, Gentile people. You know, Gentile is a word that just describes anyone who's not Jewish. We could say today that's Jewish people, that's people from China, from Mexico, from Canada, from France, from Africa, all over the world. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. God wants to see people saved from everywhere around the globe. 
God wants people to repent, to turn to him, to turn from their sins and turn to him. And God is patient with us. I've had people ask me the question, well, if, if God is good and he, he can't tolerate evil, then why does evil still exist? Why do evil people still exist? Well, here's one answer from 2 Peter 3.9. He's patient. He's tolerating us to give us more time to repent, to give us more time to get right with him, more time to proclaim the gospel so more people can be saved. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have the power to stop sin. It doesn't mean that God is not good, but he's demonstrating his patience and his grace so that more people will hear the saving message and turn, repent, and come to him through Jesus Christ. But as we go on here, we see Jonah's plans were not God's plans. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, so he went down to Joppa. We've already read this. He, he found a ship, and he said, if God wants me to go to Nineveh, which Nineveh, by the way, was about 500 miles northeast of Palestine, he says, well, then I'm going to go about 2,000 miles west. God said go, and Jonah said what? No. You caught on. You guys are a smart crowd. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no way. You say east, I go west. I'm going to go as far away from Nineveh as I can. In fact, it might not even be that he's running from Nineveh. He's running from God. I mean, I, I think that the fact that he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved is secondary. He didn't want to follow God's command. So as he's fleeing to Tarshish, his primary uh, you know, uh, uh, reason for escape is, i got to get away from God. And he went so far, some commentators believe that, that he, he went that far because he wanted to get as far away from the temple as he could. Because the temple was that, that, that sign. It was, it was that place where God was. His presence was in Israel. And the temple indicated that. That was the place of worship. That was the place that signified the presence of God and the glory of God. And so Jonah said, I want to get as far away from this place as I can. Today, for some people, it might be church. I don't want to go to church. I don't ever want to go to church. I don't want to step foot inside of a church building. Why? Because I don't want to deal with God. And where do you deal with God? In the minds of people? In a church building. So I'm not going. Jonah thought he can get on a ship and sail 2,000 miles away and get away from God. It's impossible. We're reminded from Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. These are the words of King David. But they apply to Jonah. If I take off and, and, I'm, and I'm on a ship and I'm in the Mediterranean Sea and I'm heading over towards Spain, well, guess what? He's going to learn that God is there. He cannot get away from God. You cannot get away from God. I cannot get away from God. We could never hide from God or his will. But because Jonah hated Nineveh and he was prideful and self-righteous and sinful, he tried to flee from God. Well, we see another demonstration of God's sovereign will. It wasn't just proclaimed to Jonah and resisted by Jonah, but it was obeyed by nature itself. What was God's reaction when Jonah 
tried to escape. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Okay? God's sovereign power means he controls everything. Everything in this world, in this universe that exists, exists because of God, created by God. There is nothing in all of existence that is outside of God's control. And Jonah's going to find out that the wind, the waves, the current, the fish, they all are subject to God. They all have to bow, in a sense, bow the knee to their creator. So wherever Jonah you know, thought he could go to hide from God, God already had his servants waiting for their orders to do his will, even in the middle of the ocean, because God can and will use everything that he possibly wants to, needs to, to accomplish his purpose. So Jonah gets in the ship and he's trying to run. Now these sailors, it's interesting when you look at their reaction. Right? These were veteran sailors. These guys had been out on the sea more than once. We might say it wasn't their first rodeo. You've heard that saying before. So the fact that these sailors were terrified by this storm tells us this was no ordinary storm. This was a divine storm where it scared even the most seasoned, hardened sailors. They were afraid for their lives. They had never experienced anything like this. And so they cried out to their gods. We, we know that they are polytheistic. right? Kids, you guys know that, right? Compound word, poly and theistic. Many gods. They didn't believe in just one God. They believed in many gods. So they started crying out to all their gods. Every man cried to his God. That means they believed in different gods. The men there didn't agree on one God. They said, you call on this one, you call on that one. Hey, you call on yours and you call on yours and hopefully we'll cover all our bases. One of these gods has to come through and save us. So they're scared and they're calling out for help. You know, these, these ungodly men had enough sense to call out to God. But the prophet who served the one true God, what was he doing? He was down below sleeping, trying to ignore the situation. I, I've been on, on some rough uh, airplane, some flights, and some rough boat trips. Well, that's exactly what I do. I go to sleep. I don't want to deal with the turbulence. I don't want to deal with the waves going back and forth. I'm just like, let me sleep and just wake me up when we get to land. And then I'm good. Well, this was more than just Jonah trying to avoid a little dizziness or some seasickness. He just wanted to go to sleep and ignore the whole thing. And that's what he did. And so these sailors are, are, are calling him out. See, you need to do something. Why are you sleeping? Right, the captain approached him in verse 6. How is it that you were sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Everyone's doing it. Maybe your God's going to answer. But Jonah was just trying to ignore what was happening, ignore the will of God, ignore the situation, even though he knew it could result in the death of all the sailors. He only cared about himself. He only cared about his will. He cared about no one else. But Jonah was exposed. These men did what is called casting lots. 
They didn't know who was to, to blame, and so they said, let's cast the lots, and, and uh, maybe God will tell us who's responsible, why this is happening. So that's what they do. They cast a lot. Today we might say they drew straws, or it was a roll of the dice. Maybe they were, you know, like we would say, you, you pull a card out of a deck of cards, and the, the high card reveals whatever. It was kind of a, a game of what they would say, a chance. Whatever came up and whoever had the short straw or whatever it was, that was the one chosen. So they said, let's draw lots. Let's cast lots. Now, in their minds, it was just kind of a random thing. But we understand from Scripture, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Even in the lots, God is sovereign. So the lot is cast, and it reveals that Jonah is the one who is responsible Look at verse 10. How can you do this? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Jonah told them, you need to throw me overboard. It's the, it's the only hope you have. This is all because of me. God is, has brought the storm because of me. You need to throw me overboard. And it's interesting because the men were ready to do this, but they didn't want to be guilty for Jonah's death. So they call out to the Lord. We, we pray, Lord, do not let us perish in account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. Now we know who's responsible, but we don't want to be murderers. So they're saying if it's him and the lot has revealed it is him and the storm is going to tear us apart because of him, then the only thing to do is throw him over the, over the side. But Lord, that's not what we wanted to do. We want everyone to be saved, but if that's the way that we're going to be safe, then that's what needs to be done. And we're doing this according to your will because you revealed to us by the lots that it was Jonah. So we don't want his blood on our hands. So they did. They picked him up. They threw him overboard. And immediately, the sea was calm. Another demonstration of God's divine power. I mean, it was just like glass like that. It went from a raging sea to the calmest sea they'd ever experienced. And we get these men, we, we, we see their response. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord greatly. They, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Some commentators have said that these men were not only saved, but they were saved. They were not just saved physically from the, the danger of drowning at sea, but perhaps their souls were transformed as they realized the one true God responded, the one true God put his power on display, the one true God determined that it was Jonah, the one true God had stopped the raging sea. And so they offered a sacrifice. They made vows to be faithful to the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. I mean, what, what a, a powerful testimony that we see here. Even when God's prophet is running from God, God finds him. He never lost sight of him, never lost track of him. He saves the entire crew, but he also saved Jonah. And this will help us transition to chapter 2. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. What was this creature? There's a lot of speculation. Some say most people think it was a whale. But the Bible says fish, and you know, we know that whales are mammals and not fish. There's differences. And so some people look at that and say, well, see, it wasn't a whale. It was a fish. 
Look, Bible says fish. I'm okay with fish. We often look at whales and talk about these great fish. We have to be reminded they're a little bit different. But what was it? Let's, let's try your knowledge again. Anyone know what creature this is? Whale shark. Okay. This is a fish. It's called a whale shark, but it's in the, the category of fish. Uh, how about this one? Okay. Sperm whale. Another big one. But how about this guy right here? Anyone know that one? Blue whale. This is a blue whale. Yeah. You know, we, we still see blue whales today that are over 100 feet long. To say that there isn't a creature in the sea big enough to swallow a man, you haven't seen some big sea creatures. And I can guarantee you that the animals that we see today were much larger thousands and thousands of years ago when there wasn't pollution and overfishing and all these different things. Even I think we just think back 40 years ago, my grandfather used to take me fishing. The fish that we caught back then were much larger than the same fish that we catch today. I mean, back then, it was, we would catch yellowtail left and right. I mean, big ones. Now you're lucky if you can even get one when you go out on a boat. I mean, we would catch barracuda the size of my leg today, not my 10-year-old leg, but my 52-year-old leg. Now they catch some, and they call them pencils, and you throw them back. Same fish, same family. You know, you look at fossils and things, we find teeth from animals. Things were bigger back then. So the massive creatures we see in the ocean today easily could have been maybe double their size then. I say that because it's not illogical to think that there was a creature large enough to swallow Jonah and to keep him safe inside. Where? In a nasal cavity in the stomach? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But the Bible does say that the great fish swallowed Jonah and Jonah was safe. And if we believe the word of God is inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's divine in its nature, and it's in the revelation to man that the Holy Spirit superintended the whole process and God has preserved it, then if God said Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, then Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. But here are some examples of what could have swallowed him. I mean, he was in there and uh, he had a lot to think about. And that takes us to chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Remember, he's going to Tarshish away from the temple. He says, now I'm looking back. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Listen, when Jonah was there, he was praying, and there really wasn't anything else he could do. 
I mean, he was there facing certain death. He was there in the, the, the body of the animal and in distress and in the depths of the ocean engulfed by the, the, the sea and the animal, and there was no escape. He was desperate, and so he, he sends up this desperate plea. Some call it a prayer flare. You know, you shoot up a flare, you're looking for help. This was kind of his SOS. He didn't have time to think about where he was going to pray, if he was going to kneel, if he was going to lie down, if he was going to sit down, if he was going to meditate on Scripture. He just had to send up that prayer and send it up quick because he didn't know if he had minutes or seconds to live. Well, maybe his prayer shows a little more insight. I think it does. You know, as we look at Jonah's prayer, it's another example that wherever you are, you can call upon the Lord, and the Lord will hear even in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea inside the body of a great sea creature. Well, if we look at his prayer, we can kind of break it down this way. The loneliness of separation in verses 4 through 7. I've been expelled from your sight. He says, Lord, I'm, I'm... He feels like he's not in his presence, even though we know you can't escape the presence of God. First he ran from God, now he's been expelled from the presence of God. You know, before he was trying to flee from the area where the temple was, and now he's in the presence of God, in the body of the fish. He says, I look toward your temple. I, at first I was running from you and running from it, but now I'm going back in that direction. My, my focus has changed. I'm, I'm, I'm focused once again. I was going west, now I'm heading back east. Listen, when we are in sin, the last thing we want to do is run from God, but that's our first instinct. We want to realize we need to, 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 to cast off that sin, lay it aside, confess it, and ask God to restore us, to help us to repent, to get right with Him, and not run from Him, but run to Him. And that's what Jonah did. He said, Lord, I, I, I have nothing but you. I'm, I'm surrounded by death. I'll look to your temple once again. And so he makes his commitment. Commitment to the God of salvation. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. Jonah says, you know, there are idolaters out there, and in this situation, he's associating with them. You might ask, well, how is Jonah an idolater? He knows who the one true God is. He, he follows the one true God. The, the sailors were idolaters, but how about Jonah? Well, listen, he worshipped his own will, then he worshipped God's. He wanted his plan to be accomplished and not God's. That's making himself an idol. Listen, you don't have to bow down before some, some stone or metal statue and offer it incense and fruits and vegetables to call yourself an idolater. Anything that you place above God, you desire it more than God, you love it more than God, you find pleasure in it more than God, that is an idol. You create that thing to be your God. Jonah was his own idol. He worshipped himself. He wanted his own will to be accomplished. God, you say go, I say no. You say east, I say west. 
And so he says, I need to recommit to you. I need to repent of being an idolater. And I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. The sailors paid their sacrifice to God. Jonah is now offering his sacrifice. And Jonah says, I will fulfill my vow. Perhaps what he means is, I'm ready to go to Nineveh. You told me to go. I'm ready to go. I realize now that I was wrong. I shouldn't have run. I'm ready to do what you called me to do. Salvation is from the Lord. Whether he means for Nineveh or himself, he realizes it's God who saves. Listen, the fish was not a great place to be, but it was a great place to learn. It seemed like Jonah learned quite a bit in those three days. He goes down into the depths, but God saves him and raises him up and sends him right back to where he needs to be. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. I don't know what that would have looked like. I don't know what Jonah would have looked like. But I think after being inside the stomach or the body of some sea creature surrounded by water and whatever disgusting fluids are in there, he came out looking pretty nasty. I, I don't know what he looked like. Again, this is an artist's rendition, but he was saved. And that fish took him right back where he wanted or God wanted him to be. I mean, Jonah, just, just Jonah would have been a sight to see with a story to tell. But it was never about Jonah. Notice when he went to Nineveh, he didn't say, you know, we don't have any account in Scripture that he was giving all the details of what it's like to be in a great sea creature. No, it was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown because that was the message God commissioned him to preach. Well, let's look at chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that they may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then he relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. You know, the attention shifts to the city of Nineveh. It was on Jonah as far as the human focus for chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now it's the city of Nineveh. You know, clearly we see that Jonah fulfilled his message. He went, he proclaimed the message. Jonah arose, and, and he did according to the word of the Lord. 
He took God's message. And what's amazing is that the very first verse, we see here the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. This is Jonah's second chance. God called him, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no, I'm going the other direction. God saves him, and God says, Jonah, go. Here's your second commission. Here's your second calling. This is what I want you to do. This time, though, Jonah goes. He was exposed, and he was, was cast over the side of the boat. He was saved by the fish. He was brought back to dry land, and God says, go. Nothing has changed. The commission, the call, the message has not changed. You rebelled, but I've always been consistent. This is the message I want proclaimed to Nineveh. Go. And so Jonah does that. He goes and he proclaims the message. You know, as God tells him, I want you to proclaim my message, the message which I am going to tell you. That is a reminder to us that when we share the gospel, the gospel is not our testimony. Of course, if our testimony is leading to the proclamation of the gospel, that's fine. But many times I have seen people who are advertising, you know, their church or some event, hear the testimony of this ex, you know, drug lord or this ex-mafia, whatever, and it's all about them. Very little gospel. It's like, wow, look at this person. He used to be this, now he's this, and very little proclamation about God's mercy and grace and salvation. It's more of their transformation of who they were and what they are now. Listen, it's the gospel message. It's always what God wants us to say. It's never our message. It's always the good news of salvation. So Jonah was obedient. He arose and he went and he proclaimed God's word. Now the interesting thing is, is that what gospel message did Jonah preach? Remember, Jesus had not come to the earth yet. Jesus had not been born to Mary and Joseph. Jesus had not, uh, you know, uh, been in his three and a half years of public ministry, performing miracles and casting out demons and healing people and, and, and teaching. He hadn't gone to the cross. He hadn't died. He hasn't been raised from the dead. So what good news, what gospel message did Jonah preach? Well, the answer is we just don't know. But what we do know is that it was God's word, and it was God's word of salvation. And whatever revelation God gave to Jonah, whatever the content of that message was, what saved the people of Nineveh was believing God's word, believing the provision that God had made. We're reminded of this in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Did you ever think about how Abraham was saved? Abraham never heard the gospel that we've heard to be saved. He didn't hear about Mary and Joseph from Nazareth. He didn't hear about Jesus rising from the grave on the third day. He never heard about Nicodemus. He never heard about, you know, the, the soldier piercing the side of Christ. He never heard, you know, about um, the, the, two other, the uh, two other criminals on the cross hurling insults at Christ and then one saying, you know, remember me in paradise. He didn't hear any of that. So how was Abraham saved? What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The message that God revealed to Abraham, Abraham believed the word of God. 
He believed the message of God. And whatever message God gave to Abraham was enough to count him righteous. Understand this, whether the gospel is preached in the Old Testament or the gospel is preached after the death of Christ, after the resurrection of Christ, God's provision of salvation through his Messiah is always the focus of that message. It's just the perspective that changes. People either believed in the coming salvation of God or they believed in the salvation that came. But it's always in God's provision through his Messiah. So what were the exact words of Jonah's gospel? We don't know for sure. But we do know it's exactly what God wanted him to preach. And it resulted in the salvation, the repentance of the entire city of Nineveh. And you look at their repentance. They believed the word of God. They believed the, the estimation that God had about them. And I have here a reference of Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18 to show you what God says about mankind. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God says, this is what mankind is like without me. We have to believe that if we're going to receive the gospel. Lord, you say I'm a sinner? I accept that. I am a sinner. I have offended you. I have rebelled against you. I realize that now. I'm not as good as I think I am. In fact, I'm not good at all. They believe God's estimation of who they were. And what do they do? They put on sackcloth. They put on ashes. And they were fasting. Those were common practices of mourning in that culture. The king took off his royal robe and put on rough sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he says, we, we need to listen to this message. We need to call upon God and, and, and we need to humble ourselves. Right? When you look at that humility, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. It's, you can't build anything that's grand enough for me. You can't build anything to contain me. I'm bigger than the universe. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Listen, the only person who was saved is the one who was humbled by God. This is what I used to think about myself, but now that I've heard your message and you've opened my eyes and you've, you've softened my heart and heart, now I see who I am. Now I know who you are, and I believe it. So Lord, save me. I'm not this great, powerful, magnificent person that I thought I was. I'm nothing before your sight. Everything that I need is in you. I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. So they cry out to God, and that's what they did. And we look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. The king arose from his throne, took off his robe, covered himself with ashes and sackcloth. 
issued the proclamation, nobody eats or drinks, not even the animals. Why? If you look at verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? God might save us. Let's cry out to God so he will save us. And that's exactly what he did. When you look at chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning his calamity. He didn't destroy Nineveh. He spared them. What a wonderful, compassionate God we serve. Even withholding destruction from one of Israel's greatest enemies, from some of the most wicked people that ever walked the face of the earth. You see, the only way of escape for Nineveh was God's way. You cannot save yourself through your own methods or through your own wisdom or knowledge. Or There's nothing that you can do to save yourself, to make yourself right before God. It's always belief in his word and his plan and his provision. And we know that provision came through Jesus Christ, who came to the earth and, and lived the perfect life, fulfilled the entire law of God, went to the cross, died on our behalf, as if he was the greatest offender, as if he's the one who had offended God. And we believe in his provision, his life, his death, his resurrection, then we will be saved. Apart from that, there is no salvation. With our last few minutes, let's look at chapter 4. We'll see here as God is again contrasted with Jonah. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to uh, be a shade over his head and to, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Listen, when you look at what's happening here, we see that God is a gracious God, and His plan has always been to save people throughout the world. Psalm 67, Be gracious to us and bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us, 
that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the people praise you, O Lord, or God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. This is saying, God, we want you to be great throughout the world. Salvation to all the peoples. Understand this, that God's plan has always been to bring salvation to the nations through the people of Israel. It has never been exclusively to one group of people. Nineveh is an example of that. You know, this is why we exist as Christians. This is why we exist as the church. To minister to the body of Christ, the disciples, but to take the gospel to those who don't know Christ. As Peter shared earlier, there was, was it a Muslim family who came to Christ? A young lady who had been oppressed and possessed and burdened by demons, and that's no longer there. Why? Because of Christ. This is why we exist. This is why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. To go out into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the Great Commission. Jonah was given part of that task of the Great Commission. Go to Nineveh and proclaim salvation. But Jonah's problem is man's problem. We are inherently selfish. We want what we want. We want what pleases us. The salvation of Nineveh greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. I didn't want them to be saved. In fact, he tells God that. He says, I knew you were compassionate. I knew you were gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I know what kind of God you are. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I knew you would save those creeps. I knew you would save those violent, aggressive people. And I don't want them to be saved. I don't want them to have compassion. I don't want them to be spared from the, the, the fires of hell. They deserve it. And a hotter place for them. That's why I didn't want to go. Because I don't think they're worthy of it. That was Jonah's mentality. I mean, and how often do we hear that from people? How often do we hear that from professing Christians? That should never be our thoughts. Sometimes we struggle with it, but it should never be the way we think. Jonah was angry that God spared Nineveh, and he opposed God's sovereign will because he didn't want to see Nineveh saved. But Jonah needed to be reminded that he himself needed salvation. We read about this in 1 Timothy. I'm just going to read a few things here as Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, I, I thank Christ Jesus. He strengthened me. Why? Because he considered me faithful. He put me into service. Look at who he was. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I was ignorant in my unbelief. But the grace of the Lord was more abundant, more abundant than my ignorance, more abundant than my aggression. Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's the mentality we should have. Christ came to save people, and I really needed to be saved. And he was gracious to me. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that as in me and the, as the foremost, Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. We need to remember that we needed to be saved as much as anyone else needs to be saved. That we're all sinners. We all stand guilty before God. 
And yet Jonah desired his death more than eternal life for Nineveh. So God responds with the question, do you have good reason to be angry? Verse 4. says, Jonah, really? Do you have a reason to be angry? Jonah says, yeah, I do. He went outside, sat down. He was watching the city under the shelter he made, and he wanted to see what would happen. Maybe he was hoping that condemnation would come. But he didn't want to be around Nineveh, and he was upset with God had done. But look at the contrast. Look at God's graciousness. We know Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. You know, Jonah is there in the heat. He's constructed his own shelter trying to get some relief. God gave him some extra relief, caused a plant to grow up and to give him shade to help him with his discomfort. And Jonah was really happy about that. All right, I got some shade. But what happened the next morning? This great wind comes, some kind of worm attacks the plant, and it's gone. There one day, gone the next. And what is Jonah's response? Death is better to me than life. Why? Because I lost my shade and I'm hot. Still angry, of course, about Nineveh. So as we wrap it up and you look at the last two verses of Jonah, the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Like Jonah, you demonstrated your concern for this plant. It's really for selfish reasons. It was for you, not so much the plant. But you showed compassion. You were upset when the plant perished. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? I've created the heavens and the earth. I created all human beings. Nineveh has sinned against me primarily, not you. If you can have compassion for a plant, shouldn't I have compassion for human souls? And then he says there's more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. Many commentators think that Jonah's talking or God is talking about uh, younger children. 120,000 children who don't quite know the difference between right and wrong. Which means this could have been a reference that there were maybe half a million people, which would coincide with what historians say about the size of Nineveh. To say, hey, Jonah, there's like 120,000 kids there. They don't quite know what's going on yet. And you're upset about one plant? Shouldn't I have compassion on maybe half a million people that are going to perish? But you see, Jonah was serving himself, following his own will. That's why Jonah was wrong to withhold salvation from Nineveh, because salvation is from God. That's why Jonah was wrong to, to run from God. You can't run from God. You can't hide from God. That's why Jonah was wrong to complain about God. God's will and God's ways are always perfect, not man's. And that's why Jonah was wrong to desire death above God's salvation to Nineveh. You know, the reality is, as we, we wrap it up this morning, God is sovereign over his creation, over man, over salvation, and, and it is God's will to save people. Who he saves and when he saves them and how he saves them is up to him. Our part in this salvation 
is to take the message to them, to do it willingly, to do it joyfully, obediently, and say, Lord, thank you that you've saved me. Thank you that you have put me into your service. Thank you that you've counted me worthy to bring this message. And Lord, you do your work in their lives. I will go because you say go. And I will trust in you that you will do the very best thing with the message that's proclaimed. And so as we wrap it up this morning and I close in prayer, I want you to think of these things. There's two groups of people in this room. Some of us are saved and some are not. If you are saved, then this is a time for us to reflect and say, am I anything like Jonah? If I am, Lord, you know, take that from me, wake me up, open my eyes, and let me be humble, let me be compassionate and merciful and gracious and obedient to you to take the message. And always remember that I need salvation as much as anyone else. If you are not saved, you do not have a message that says 40 days and you will be overthrown. Today could be your last day. Today is the day of salvation. Call out upon the Lord, humble yourself, believe in his plan of salvation through his son Jesus Christ, and who knows? He might grant that salvation to you this very day. And that is our prayer that he will for those who need it. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning and for this opportunity uh, to study your word. I pray, Lord, that uh, we will take it to heart, that we will be uh, hearers and doers of what we have learned this morning, that we will honor you, we will proclaim Christ with boldness, and that many people will come to salvation through the proclamation of the word. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who have not been made right with you, that you will open their eyes and soften their hearts and just let them receive the message today that they need to be right with you through your provision through Jesus Christ and that they would call upon him, call upon you to save them, to forgive them, to give them new life, a new spirit, to put your spirit within them and to give them assurance that for all those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation that they will be transformed and they will be accepted as your children and loved and have the guarantee that they have no condemnation in store for them. Father, I pray that someone would reach out to you, cry out to you this morning and just call for that salvation. Father, as we close in a final song, we pray that you are glorified through us and that we are edified and that we will take all these things that we've learned today through the preaching of your word and through the music, the songs that we sing, and put them to practice, glorify you, so that we will shine brightly in this dark world. We thank and we praise you in Christ.